Hi, my name is Paul and I'm a member with Restored Church. If you're new, we want to welcome you and thank you for tuning in. We believe that the church is not an event, but a family that you belong to, so we'd love the opportunity to connect with you. If you want to learn more about our church or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, restoredtemecula.church, and click on Contact. We also have a mobile app with resources, including our Sunday messages, information about upcoming events, and other ways to connect. You can download our app on Apple or Android app stores. With all that said, we hope you enjoy the message. Morning, everybody. Uh, it's good to be with you all. My name is Herrick, and I'm on ownership here at Resort Temecula, and I want to welcome you to our Sunday gathering. I want to um, quickly send, to let you guys know that Tom sends his love. He's in India uh, this week. He is visiting. If you guys were, have been here the last few weeks, uh, we, we recently were visited by kind of our international gospel partner in that part of the world. She was here, and um, I can't say her name for security purposes, but, uh, and this is being recorded, but... He's there with a bunch of the other restored uh, family of churches, different leaders. Andy Rogers is there. Brad Sarian's there. And they are kind of spending some time with her and with her team, uh, spending time like, literally on the ground and doing some, I think, they're going to have some interesting stories to tell about how things are going there in India um, as people are literally reorienting their life to let people know about who Jesus is in a very difficult uh, place. In fact, a place that's not safe at all <laughs> to do what they're doing. It's pretty amazing. So... That's where he's at, and uh, so I want to welcome you here. I had the privilege of kind of continuing our series this morning called The King and His Kingdom. Uh, if you're new, we've been kind of working through the Gospel of Matthew for the last several years, it seems like. I don't actually remember when we started, but it's been a while. And the Gospel of, the reason it's been, we've been in it for so long is that the Gospel of Matthew is absolutely loaded with treasures and riches for us to mine. So we just kind of like to go slowly through. Uh, and today will be kind of just another, we're only going to go through four or five verses today. But they've been four or five verses that I've been sitting with and chewing on this whole week, and I'm really excited to share some of the things that I have been um, kind of grappling with as I've been reading the words of Jesus and seeing how people responded to him. Before I do, uh, I wanted to kind of, I wanted to read something that I got in a, I'm signed up for a newsletter I think it's, it's actually, it's kind of a cool newsletter. It picks up on things that are happening in the culture and kind of summarizes it for uh, middle-aged men so that we're not having to constantly scroll through and figure out what's happening in this world. It's not just middle-aged men, it's everybody, but I am a middle-aged man. And uh, this is what, this is, I copied and pasted this from one of the newsletters and I'm just going to read it. Um, it said, the cultural buzz around Taylor Swift and her new love interest, Travis Kelsey, whose nickname is Trailer, hashtag Trailer, is everywhere, but is everything as it seems. So here's what teens are speculating. September 24th marked the first time Taylor Swift was seen at a Kansas City Chiefs game. By the way, if you don't know, Taylor Swift is a famous uh, singer. I actually don't know much about her besides that. Um, she's everywhere, though, apparently, including Kansas City Chiefs games, which... Uh, big football fans in the house know what I'm talking about? Does this become a thing? Yep, I see one hand raised. And we're off and running. Her presence there, alongside Donna Kelsey, which I'm assuming is Taylor, um, Travis's sister? Mother? Seemed to confirm that she... 
Taylor is in fact in a relationship with the Kansas City starting tight end. In the short weeks since, the NFL has taken every opportunity to exploit the popularity of Miss Swift in every conceivable way. And this is something new. I think this is part of why this was in the newsletter. It says that Gen, Gen Z loves to speculate on industry plants, PR relationships, and celebrity spin. Is this true? If you're a Gen Zer, is this, is this a real thing? Not true. Okay. So apparently, this is garbage. So this, this message is how much longer? So, but here's, here's, here's what's happening, I guess. There's been a lot of conversations revolving around whether hashtag trailer is in a real romantic relationship or if this whole thing is staged for attention. Okay, I think that's the... Does that seem like a fair thing? Those of you that spend time on TikTok? Okay. Apparently this had 80 million TikTok views and this is from like two weeks ago. So it's probably like half a billion at this point. In fact, this morning I went on TikTok and I saw somebody talking about this very thing. And she was in tears because I guess Taylor was at a concert somewhere and she ran off stage and found Travis and gave him a kiss or something. Did anybody see this? There's like a warm embrace at the end. Thank you. Thanks for being honest. Yeah. So this girl, I guess, it, I guess it's like hashtag real. Um, so this girl was on, on TikTok in tears. She's like, this is the sweetest thing I've ever seen. Look at the way that Taylor is running to Travis. Hashtag trailer. It's so real. It's so beautiful. Like this girl is in tears. Okay. And it probably had 50 million TikTok views. This girl crying over this embrace. <clears throat> so there's footage of Swift. Okay. I got to get through this. There's initially like footage of, of her like pointing to him on the field and I think like going like this or whatever. But now that's obviously, this is outdated because now there's a, a literal embrace caught on camera. Okay. And apparently the football fans are exhausted by this. Any football fans in the house just ready for this to be done? Yep. All the middle-aged men. So this is why you read these newsletters to confirm these things. So football fans are already are exhausted. I think we're all exhausted just from this intro to this sermon. So I'll just get to the point. This newsletter asked the question, like, do you think that Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey's relationship is real or is it a PR stunt? What do you guys think? I'm just curious. If we could go one at a time, that'd be helpful because it's just, I just hear, can you just go like this if you think it's real? Thumbs up. Okay, there's, okay, about 15 people, two thumbs up in the back. All right. Can you give me a thumbs down if you think it is fake? Okay. All right. And who, who's like this, like, just stop talking about Taylor Swift? All right. Well, that's it. Lord, thank you for this morning. All right. So here's the, here's the reality is I've been chewing on trailer, hashtag trailer, is that I think I think we do have this, that girl on, on TikTok's not crazy this morning, um, that she was, she was talking about this. I think there is a sense like we really long for genuine love. I think we do. I think it's something that we will gen, we'll, we'll cheer for it when we see it, right? We can rally behind it. We'll talk about it. We'll gush about it. Um, but we also kind of realize that relationships are complex, and I think Gen Z's got this right. Relationships are complex. Sometimes relationships aren't what they really seem to be. 
Sometimes what appears to be love is actually self-interest, kind of masquerading as love. Can we agree on that? Okay. Uh, sometimes I feel like we're actually mistaken or even misled concerning the true nature of love or what a relationship is all about. And one of the things that I know for sure is that I think every single one of us would say, we don't want to be on the receiving end of that, do we? We don't want to be misled or mistaken about what a relationship, especially one that we're in. Uh, we don't want to be receiving in that. At the same time, we also, if we think about it, we don't want to be on the giving end of that, right? We don't want to mislead people about where a relationship is at. If you've ever been in a dating relationship, I remember once uh, I, was, I was on eHarmony. I don't know if eHarmony is still a thing. No? Okay, I guess it's not a thing anymore. Except I'm dating myself. Uh, eHarmony was a dating, online dating service you had to pay money for to meet people. It's like, like a fraternity, except whatever. Um, it's romantic in its nature. And so with that said, you, you got paired up with people. And one time I got paired up with a friend, which is pretty weird. Have you ever been in that space? Because then it's like, well, do you say something? Or do you wait till they say something? And so I waited. And that's, this friend actually did come to me and said, like, hey, what do you think about this? It's kind of weird we got paired up, but this is something you'd want to be interested in. This is, by the way, not how I met Heather. <laughs> I did meet her on eHarmony, but not this particular exchange that I'm talking about right now. And so we went on a date, and it wasn't great, eh? It was just like, it was just not a great date. And so I ended up um, doing what a lot of guys do when they're in their early 20s. I just kind of disappeared. Yeah, great move, right? It's a great, great move. All the guys, this is what you should do if you end up in this space. You should just go quiet and hope it goes away. <laughs> oh. Your brains aren't fully formed until 25, just a brain science thing. Um, I'm just going to attribute it to that. With that said, I think DTRs are really important, right? We need to kind of know where we're at with people. They need to know where we're at with them. And when that's not the case, it can be really painful and hurtful. Just like I hurt my friend by not just saying, hey, I think we should be friends. Um, you know, I wanted to give this a go, but this is, a, you know, we're, we're, we're great friends. Uh, what we're going to do today is essentially kind of a DTR, like kind of a corporate DTR. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the greatest relationship that any of us can ever have, which is with Jesus. And we're going to ask the question, like, is our relationship with Jesus real or is it staged? And one of the ways you know is you have a kind of a DTR, Right? Oh, sorry, defining the relationship. Thank you. I'm using this so everybody knows. Hashtag trailer means Taylor Swift and Cal, whatever. DTR means defining the relationship. I need to define my terms. And so we're going to find out, I think today, as we like explore this story, is our relationship with Jesus real or is it staged for attention? Nobody wants to be in that kind of a relationship that's staged for attention where somebody's just trying to get something from you, doesn't really care about you. And on the flip side... We don't want to be in the kind of relationships where we're just trying to get something from Jesus, but we don't really actually want him. So let's go over to Matthew chapter 9, verse 27, and we're going to learn about the kind of the nature of having a genuine relationship with Jesus. Now, if you're here and you're not sure if you're a disciple of Jesus, this is a great message for you to be a part of. But if you're here and you are a disciple of Jesus, this is going to help, I think, bring some things to light that can very easily go dormant 
that will deeply impact the way that you show up for, that you show up in relationships with other people, and that you show up in your relationship with Jesus. So let's go over to Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 to 31. And let's quickly read, there's not a lot of verses here, so we'll get through this pretty quick. Uh, The context, if you're new, the context of what we've been reading through in Matthew is that Jesus has been going around doing incredible things. He's been healing people, he has been setting people free who are oppressed by demons, Uh, he actually has shown that he has power over disaster, over death, uh, over disease, over demons. And today we're going to see that he actually has power over disability as well. So that's kind of the context of the story, but I think there's way more going on than just Jesus healing people. Verse 27, as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. And in the Greek, it's kind of like they're they're calling out, but it's not like a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. They're calling out to him, have mercy on us, have mercy, pity us, son of David. So they're persistent. Verse 28, it says, When he entered the house, Jesus entered a house, the blind men approached him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I can do this? Which is a fascinating question. Do you believe that I can do this? Do what? I guess everybody knew. They said to him, Yes, Lord. That's why we're here. We're here because we believe. Verse 29. Then Jesus touched their eyes, saying, let it be done for you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. Then Jesus warned them sternly, be sure that no one finds out. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout the whole area. Scene. That's it. Okay. It's four four verses, four or five verses, but there's so much packed into them. So I want to just kind of work through three things with you. If you're taking notes, this is kind of, this is my outline. We're going to talk first about a really important movement that takes place in the story. So movement is the first thing. Then motivation. We're going to talk about motivation. Then we're going to talk about a moment that Jesus has with, this, with these men. So movement, motivation, and moment. Okay, number one, movement. Movement, Okay. Um, how do you know if something is real, if a relationship is real, or if it's staged for attention? One of the things that's fascinating about this story, I don't know if you guys picked up on it, is that uh, these men, wherever Jesus went, there were these big crowds, right? Huge crowds of people that were following him. And so these men kind of had a moment where they moved from the crowd to the kitchen, if you will. They went from a part of like this big group of people that are following Jesus but they had to take that moment where they went into the house to be with Jesus. And so I'm, I have a quote. You guys don't have this in the back, but I'm just going to quickly read it. This is from William Barclay. He's a commentator, was a commentator, who wrote on Matthew. And he said, it's interesting to note that Jesus, in effect, compelled these people to see him alone. Did you notice that Jesus didn't answer them in the street? They're calling out to him. He doesn't answer them. And in their culture, it's an honor and shame culture. Jesus didn't have to answer them. He would have actually lost no honor in light of their, their, their relationship. He, didn't, he wasn't like obligated to respond to these people. Um, so, he, so he kept walking. He didn't answer them in the streets. They came to him in the house. And so this commentator wrote, 
It's a law of spiritual life that sooner or later every individual must confront Jesus alone. It's all very well to take a decision for Jesus on the flood tide of emotion at some great gathering, which I've been a part of those before, side note, I don't think they're bad. I remember being in the Metrodome, which is an old stadium that the Vikings used to play at back in the mid-90s, and Billy Graham was there. Billy Graham's a famous evangelist. And my family, we all went to go hear Billy Graham preach the gospel. And like thousands of people flooded from the, from the seats in the Metrodome down to the front. Uh, it's not a bad thing. It's a really good thing in a lot of ways. However, that can be, there can be like a flood of emotion that kind of we get swept up into, right? To respond. So there's like these big gatherings where they can get swept up into a flood of emotion. Or sometimes it's just a little group which is charged with spiritual power. But after the crowd, people have to go home and be alone. After the fellowship, they must go back to the essential isolation of every human soul. And what really matters is not what people do in the crowd but what they do when they are alone with Jesus. Jesus compelled these men to face him alone. It was really powerful. They had to go from being a face in the crowd to being face-to-face with Jesus. That's the movement. I'm talking about a movement. It's a movement from the crowd into the kitchen, if you will, to be face-to-face with Jesus. And so I just want to ask the question, like if you're sitting here today, as you're thinking about your own life, like have you had that kind of moment personally, where you've moved like from the crowd, from a face in the crowd to be face to face with Jesus? Have you had that moment in your life? Uh, I remember when I had that moment in my life. I won't get into all the details um, just for the sake of time. But growing up, I grew up um, in a, I'm, I'm Puerto Rican and by birth, almost every Puerto Rican is Roman Catholic. That's just kind of the way that it is. Uh, we were under Spanish colonial rule for a long time, and then we have kind of been under American colonial rule for a while now, too. But ultimately, like, we have stronger ties as, as Puerto Ricans to our Spanish roots, and that includes kind of the faith that we inherited, which is the Roman Catholic uh, faith. And so for me, I grew up very much as a face in the crowd. I was there every, you know, every Sunday or most every Sunday, uh, I was, I kind of went through all the steps to, to become like a full-fledged member of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, but when I moved away from home, it had basically no bearing on my life, so I pretty much dropped it as soon as I got to college. It just was not a thing. I went through what a lot of people go through, which is when you go to, when you go to school, you have to kind of figure out what you actually believe. You're not under mom and dad's roof anymore. You have to figure out what do I actually believe for myself. And... For me, uh, kind of that being the face in the crowd continued, I think, for quite a while. Actually, I'd say for another five years, until I was 22, almost 23. And what ended up happening to me is I did hear about Jesus because there were some people in my life that were pointing me to him. Uh, as it were, Jesus kind of left like a testimony of himself in my life. Uh, he had left some, some, what you might call like a witness, and that's actually, the, there's a term, that, that was a term that I, as I was studying for this passage, uh, came across a few times, because Jesus is ultimately, what this story reveals is that Jesus is, he's a patron. If you've never heard that term before, Jesus is a patron, and what that means is that Jesus is somebody that people who had no reputation, people who were of no real social class or standing, 
went to when they needed something. That's what Jesus is. He's a patron. That's a, that's a term that doesn't sound like all that interesting, but it's a term that's actually loaded, and historians like, know it really well. And so what you have is Jesus coming face to face with a client. Again, that's a term that we use like typically in business relationships. People have clients that they serve. But in that time and in that space, Jesus is the patron who meets the needs of people who can't meet them. So, so for me, as I was in college and over the next several years, I realized that Jesus, he wasn't just somebody that started like this um, this gathering of people all over the world who kind of, you kind of check the boxes, you pay your dues, you, it's sort of like, it's nice to have like some, a religious kind of moral compass for your life, to have rules to live by. Not that those things are necessarily bad, but it was after going through an experience of like hearing about Jesus and kind of going through five years of wrestling with him, that Jesus became real to me because I actually figured out, oh, I need him. Like these blind men, I had to get to the point in my life where I recognized I need his grace. I'm actually a client, and he's my patron. And again, these terms might not mean much to you right now, but they will, I think, by the end of this message. Because these men who were faces in the crowd got face-to-face with Jesus because they figured out one thing. What's that one thing? I need your grace. I'm going to read, I'm going to keep this, actually, I'm not going to read this whole quote, so don't worry about this, Marshall. But in that society, in that time, when this, this was written, um, they were in a very hierarchical society. Uh, nowadays, we, don't, we really don't like hierarchy. Um, in that time, that's what, that's how they, that was how things were arranged. They were in a hierarchical arrangement. Power was concentrated at the top of society. So the pinnacle was the, the emperor, and then there were senators, and there were these different people. They represented about 3% of the population, the most powerful people, the elites, if you will, who kind of keep the machinery of power running. But they're only 3%. The vast majority of people were in this kind of 85% that consisted of lower working class people, they were slaves, they were free persons, they were artisans and craftsmen and merchants and day laborers. And then at the very, very bottom of society were the expendables and the impure. These were people that had no status, no wealth. They had nothing to contribute to those people above them. They were widows. Check out this list. Think about the New Testament. If you're, if you're a follower of Jesus and you've read the New Testament before, here are the people that have nothing to contribute to society from the hierarchical perspective. Widows, orphans, prisoners, and those with disabilities. And what do we have in this story? We have someone with a disability. They can't see. They're blind. For the vast majority of people in this population, the main priority was simply survival. That's part of what makes reading the Bible so difficult is that we're middle-class middle Americans who, yes, we have struggles. I'm not downplaying any of that, and we have financial struggles and all that. But how many of us are actually just thinking all the time about simply surviving? Not many. Not many. So what you had here was this movement of someone who is an expendable person in society, someone who has no power, no class, nothing, 
going for them, moving towards someone who has all the power, <laughs> Jesus. And then basically saying like, Lord, if, if, you, if you're not my patron, if you don't take care of my needs, I have nowhere else to go. You're my one hope. But notice something about what they're doing as they're actually going about like pursuing Jesus. They're persistent. They're confident that Jesus is going to respond. And he says to them, do you believe I can do this? And they're like, yeah, we wouldn't be here if we didn't. Let it be done for you according to your faith. Faith. That's a term, by the way, that I feel like needs so much more definition than I can, needs so much more explanation. I remember going to SeaWorld once. It was like the Shamu show. I'll never forget sitting there. We used to live in San Diego. We used to go to SeaWorld. We had passes. And I don't know if you guys have ever been to that show, but at one point, it's like Shamu's doing tricks and flips or whatever. Um, And then it just says, like, believe. (laughs) Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody been to this show before? Okay. In what? (laughs) Was my genuine question. Why? I don't know. Yeah, it's impressive. Like, you can train an orca. It's cool. I believe in your training abilities. Was there something more that you desired from me? (laughs) Believe. Believe, and the reason I mentioned that is because it's always kind of struck me that there's this weird sentimentality around belief in our culture, right? Uh, Hallmark movie kind of warm, fuzzy feelings of goodness to come if you just wait long enough. I don't know. If you handle things right, things will go well for you, believe. So there's that kind of like kind of sentimentality. Um, but I think in the church, what we probably have more of is sort of like, I believe the right things. I have this body of doctrine in my head of teaching, of content, that's organized systematically very nicely. The deity of Christ, the trinity, the atonement. These things aren't bad. These things are absolutely essential. They're necessary. They're good. But did you know that these men probably didn't possess any of that? How much doctrine, how many doctrinal classes, how much time did they spend on YouTube watching people explain the Bible? YouTube didn't exist. Did they spend time around teaching? Maybe. But they were expendable people. These were people that had nothing. These people were looked at as though they were nothing. They're just a burden. They're just a burden in society. But Jesus said that they had faith, the kind of faith that brings life change and transformation and draws God's power. What is this faith? What does that even mean? So I want to tell you guys something about faith that I learned this week. Uh, What is faith? What is faith? I think faith is that which drives us to come out of the crowd into the kitchen. I think faith is the kind of thing that turns us from a face in the crowd that's just there kind of listening, interested, maybe curious about Jesus, to someone who's like, I have nowhere else to go. You're my, you're my hope. You're the only one. You're the only one that can help me. And so I just have a question for you today. This is especially true 
for those of you who maybe you have not yet started to follow Jesus and you're kind of here and you're curious, but it's equally true for those of you who are followers of Jesus. Have you ever had a situation in your life where you have been like, I have no other hope but you, Jesus? You ever felt so overwhelmed by a situation, by brokenness, by other people's sin or maybe your own sin? Maybe the mess that you find yourself in where you're like, I have nowhere else to go but you, Jesus. That's the movement of faith. That's how faith gets started. And it brings us to a place where we say, I need you. I need your grace. So that's the first thing, if you're taking notes. That movement, you can summarize it this way. It's the movement that says, I need your grace. And it draws us to Jesus. That's one of the ways you know your faith is real and it's not staged for attention. There is a little bit of prestige in some places for being kind of attached to Jesus. Not, not where I came from in North Park, to, to say that you're a Christian is um, not, a, not a positive in that culture, in that environment. Uh, there's a lot of assumptions that might be made about me as a Christian, uh, about what I believe or how I treat people. And so being a Christian isn't uh, advantageous in certain places, but in other places it is. And I think this is the kind of place where it's way more advantageous to actually say I'm a Christian. Because a lot of people in this valley have been churched before. That doesn't mean that all their experiences have been bad or good, but it's not, as big of a, it's not as big of a mark on you if you say you're a Christian. Uh, and so my point in saying that is it's, it's really helpful to think about it from the perspective of facing the crowd to face-to-face with Jesus. I need your grace. I need you. That's the movement that takes place. Whether it's advantageous to us or not advantageous to us. That's the movement. Okay, the second thing I want to talk to you guys about is motivation. That motivation that I saw in this story that really blew my mind. So as these, as these two men realize, I need, I need your grace, and they realize that Jesus was this kind, benevolent person, they actually, they do something really remarkable. Did you catch what the guys did after Jesus said, don't say anything. What do they do? They spread it. They started talking more and more. Anybody feel kind of confused by that? Okay. I felt kind of confused by it too as I started working through uh, this passage this week. I was kind of confused. Like, why would Jesus say, don't say anything, number one? I don't know, if, I don't know about you, but if I like, prayed for somebody, if somebody was blind and I touched their eyes and they got better, I think I'd want people to know. I think I'd be like, yeah, feel free to put it on TikTok. <laughs> whatever. P- put it on whatever. It's okay for people to know. But Jesus actually said, his, his exact words were, be sure that no one finds out, verse 30. And it says that he warned them sternly. Sternly. Do you ever think of Jesus as having like stern moments? He does. Parents have stern moments. Jesus has stern moments. It's not bad. It could be bad if it's all the time, but he has moments where he says things sternly for a reason, to give us an emphasis. Why would he do that? Why would he possibly do that? Um, I was talking a little bit earlier about patrons and clients, and I realized that this is something I've been spending all week with, but you haven't. So I thought it might be helpful, Marshall, if you can cue up the video. 
I want to give you guys a little bit, and I'll let you know when to stop because we're not going to watch the whole thing. But I want to give you guys a little bit of an introduction into this patron and client reality that I think helps explain why those men responded the way that they did. And I think it has something important to say to our lives. To relationships us are important to all people. But around the world, relationships work differently. In many cultures, patronage is how relationships work. So what is patronage? It's a reciprocal relationship between social unequals. A patron has great wealth and status, which they use to help and protect others. The client repays such favors with loyalty and thanks. In patronage relationships, patrons gift material resources and clients repay with honor. Hospitality is one example of a patronage relationship. A host displays generosity by providing food, and guests repay with gratitude. Many political leaders also function as patrons. They promise security, prosperity, and greatness, then expect from their citizens loyalty and respect. Many relationships follow the patron-client model, like teacher-student, employer-employee, and even pastor-church. Though patronage is common, it can be confusing and frustrating for Westerners. It seems like nepotism, corruption, or dependency. This clash is because of obvious cultural differences. In the West, rules define relationships. But elsewhere, relationships define the rules. When it comes to money, Westerners want independence and freedom. But many cultures value interdependence and sharing. Western societies demand fairness and equality, but could patrons give favors to their own people? These conflicting values lead to misunderstandings. So then, what does the Bible say about patronage? Well, the word patronage is actually absent, but the concept is ubiquitous throughout Scripture. Consider God's covenant relationship with Israel in the Old Testament. God blessed them with salvation, land, and shalom. In response, Israel honored God with praise, thanks, and obedience. Both sides were expected to be loyal and faithful. God formed this patron-client relationship to advance His kingdom purposes. Then in the Gospels, Jesus mediates God's favor to humanity. Actually, this pause right there. Provided what people saw. <laughs> Let's not give away the ending. Okay, uh, so I know there was a lot, patronage and clients, but I want to just point something out to you. Did you notice what the clients give to the patrons in response to their generosity? Say that again, a little louder. Thanks and praise, yeah, thanks and praise. Actually, before we get into it, does anybody feel a little bit weirded out by this? It's okay if you do. Nobody? I'm the only one? Okay. Well, I feel kind of weirded out by this. And I'll give you a, a, a specific example of why. Uh, I remember I was in, I used to work at a law firm, uh, a part of a department of researchers that would kind of do support work for the attorneys. And that, that was my first job out of college. And I was there for several years. I was in the same department. And we ended up doing our hiring as a group. 
So we used to have group interviews for people who were interested in getting a job with us that wanted to be researchers too. And the way we kind of had a very specific kind of track that we would have people go through. We would, collect, uh, we would collect all kinds of resumes. We would sort those resumes. We would eliminate you know, candidates that we didn't think were good fits for the job. We, we kind of had our HR pre-screen people that we were interested in, and they kind of helped us whittle it down to a manageable number of potential candidates. And then we had interviews that we would go through, and then we would talk as a team about our favorite candidates, and then we kind of, you know, that was part of our process. So you can see that there's a lot of different steps that went into hiring people. And that was good because we got the chance to vet people. We got a chance to sit down. We worked very closely together as a team. And so it was really helpful to sit down with the people and get to know them before we invited them onto a team. And this is the way that it worked. And by and large, I feel like we got our hires like pretty, pretty good. We had good, good records with our hires, except for one. Uh, there was one person that was hired onto our team who was actually somebody that I was kind of tasked to raise up, and they skipped the entire interview process. They weren't interviewed uh, like, like people normally were. They were just hired. Can you guess why? Interestingly, when everybody talks like quietly, all I hear is like a low hum. So anybody want to say it out loud and proud? Nepotism, thank you, yeah. Uh, nepotism. And I was, I was upset. I was angry. Uh, not least of which, not the smallest reason wasn't just, it wasn't just about the nepotism, but it was because I had to then work with this person that I never got a chance to say, do I want to work with them or not? And, and very directly and very closely. And as the story goes, this person was hired. We start training them. Training goes poorly. We, put, we just throw them in. Okay, let's get, let's get some experience. It goes poorly. A lot of, of performance issues. And I don't know if this was the right call or not, but at one point it got so dire that I knew, like, you're, you're about to get fired, man. <laughs> it took months to get there, but... And again, I'm not sure that this was the right call, but I had kind of like this private conversation where I was like, hey, man, if we can't turn this thing around soon... Th- we, we got to do something. I wanted him to succeed. I wanted him to do well. And he ended up quitting before we could actually, you know, before he actually got fired. But I remember that left this kind of terrible taste in my mouth with respect to favors. Because I think what ended up happening was, like, there was a well-placed person in our firm, and this person's dad was somebody that they wanted, you know, like, they wanted to provide this opportunity for this, for this young man I think primarily because of who he was related to and connected to. And so does that make you uncomfortable? I think it really strikes us culturally as almost like evil because it's not fair is how it feels. Now, in that culture, obviously, they had a different view of things. I don't know if you noticed that. That's most of the rest of the world and most of the rest of human history. Favors were a part of it. You, you had to have them, otherwise you might not make it. You might not survive a bad crop might not survive a downturn in your business. Uh, You might be destitute, apart from having people, patrons that you could rely on and you could cry out to as you had need. A little bit of a Godfather vibe for the Godfather fans in the house. Uh, You needed someone that you could go to to ask for help. And so 
I want to point something out to you that really struck me as I was reading this passage. I think these men were so confident in Jesus' power that they persisted through the crowds to get into this private space with Jesus, have that face-to-face encounter, and I think they knew he was going to show up for them, he was going to do something. And what does he do? He shows up for them, and he does something. And so in that environment, in that culture, how do you respond to a patron that does, takes care of you? What was the word? Praise, honor. So what do these guys do? They start spreading Jesus' fame. They can't even think about it. It's not even like a question. Here's this generous benefactor, this patron who loves expendable people like us. Can you believe it? To the point where they don't even hear Jesus. (laughs) They had faith for healing, but they weren't faithful in their hearing of Jesus' words. But as I've read this, as I've spent more time thinking about this, this kind of patronage culture, I admire these guys. I'm not suggesting to you that you should disregard what Jesus says. It's usually a bad idea. I'm not saying that if Jesus says turn left, that you should turn right. That's not what I'm saying. But it's, it, it struck me that something deeper was happening. These men were motivated by something really powerful. Can I get quote number one up, Marshall? I'm going to read this to you guys. I think it helps explain this. This is, this is from a book that talks about this patronage and honor-shame culture. And it's talking about situations like the one that we just read about where Jesus shows up and does something for someone. It's as notable as the spread of Jesus' fame, the result of public testimony being given to the benefactor's generosity or the patron's generosity. Even those who are commanded to be silent cannot refrain from spreading his fame. So ingrained is public praise of one's benefactor. It is possible that those healed understood Jesus' commands against publicizing it as signs of the genuineness of Jesus' motives in healing. He was not a glory seeker, but a sincere benefactor. Ironically, this would have had the effect of making them feel gratitude even more deeply, and thus more apt to declare Jesus' aratai, his demonstrations of his virtue and well-doing. The result of this spread of the report of his well-doing is the collection of a vast entourage who are clearly presented as seekers or recipients of his favors. The mass of followers is the visible representation of Jesus' fame and a potential power base for any public agenda he might entertain, hence the cause of the arousal of envy and the source of the fear that led to his execution by the Romans as a public enemy. Do you guys catch the motivation element here? This, this, this author, David De Silva, basically said that these guys would have felt Jesus' gratitude even more deeply because he didn't do it because he was seeking his own glory, but he was sincere. Again, what did Jesus tell them not to do? Don't say anything. After he did a notable miracle. It's incredible. So I think the motivation that these men are are demonstrating for our sharing of the gospel, for our praise, is he's shown me such kindness. If you're taking notes, write that down. He's shown me such kindness. 
That's what motivated them. Again, they're expendable in the eyes of the culture that they're a part of. And here's, here's Jesus showing up and showing kindness to people that could never repay him. And that is the relationship that every person has to enter into with Jesus. It's a relationship where you could never pay him back for what he's done for you. That wasn't even a part of the equation for them. It wasn't about repaying. There is certainly like a reciprocity. There's you did this for me and I want to make your fame spread across the world. And so is it real or is it staged for attention? There's only one real way to know. This is how the ancients would have, would have thought about this. Is your relationship with Jesus an expression of gratitude? That's the only way you know if it's genuine or not. Can you say along with these blind men, he's shown me such kindness in my weakness, in my inability, in my failures, in my shame? So, it's, just gotta, it's gotta be said, these men, they didn't listen to Jesus when he said, don't say anything. And the reason for Jesus telling them that, you know, commentators speculate. Certainly there is this reality that, as that, that last quote uh, said at the end, that he would be seen as a political enemy, that Jesus would be, that if he's got all these people following him, that that would put a big target on his back. And sure enough, it did. So there could be like some of that at play. But ultimately, either way, Jesus did that for them. He did that for them. And so they, they're motivated by, he's shown me so much kindness. Can I just ask you the question, is, your, is the reason you're here because he's shown you such kindness? Let me pull back a little bit. Why are you here? Why are you here? Is your relationship with Jesus real? Or is it staged for attention? Again, we're in a place where being a part of a church community is not bad attention. This is in North Park. I keep telling myself that over the last five years in a really helpful way because the assumptions don't hold of where I come from. But here, this is Temecula. This is a different place. So it's even a more important question. Is my relationship with Jesus real or is it staged for attention? Here's the big idea that I have for today. You can throw it up on the back. Genuine love, if we feel a genuine love for Jesus, we respond with gratitude to him. Again, patron clients. He loves us in ways that we can never pay back, but we respond with gratitude. So that's the second part of my, that's the second thing I want to encourage you guys to write down. Our motivation for sharing about Jesus, for talking about him, is that he's shown me such kindness. That's how we know that our relationship with him is real. And it's not staged for attention. It's gratitude. And so I just wanna, I wanna invite the, the band up and the prayer team up. We're gonna kind of transition into a time of response. I'm gonna invite you to stand up if you're able to. Take a minute to stretch, stretch out your legs. We got about 30 minutes left. Not of this talk, but a time of response.
just want to ask this question. This is my third, the third thing I wanted to talk to, to you guys about. It's like the third thing was this moment. I don't know if you guys picked up on it, but as these men were moved towards Jesus with their need and were met with grace, they had this motivation to then go out and spread his fame. It might have gotten the better of them because they didn't listen to Jesus. But either way, I think it's important to know they had their moment with Jesus. They went from face in the crowd to face to face and Jesus had specific things to say to them. He asked them a question. What was the question he asked? Do you believe I can do this? Right? And then he said, it's going to be done to you according to your faith. And then he gave them a command. Don't tell anybody about this. Don't tell anybody about this. And so they had a moment with Jesus. And I think as I've been praying about this time, I, I think what I want to do for the next couple minutes is just create a moment where you can get with Jesus yourself. Where you can, essentially, I want you to picture yourself across the kitchen table from Jesus. You're in a crowd right now. In fact, I'm going to encourage you to close your eyes. This might help you. You don't have to. It's not super spiritual to close your eyes, but it might help you so that you just kind of forget about the crowd. And imagine yourself stepping out of the crowd and into the kitchen of a quiet house and Jesus is there. And I want you to imagine maybe something that you're dealing with right now. Especially if you've never done this before, if you've never brought Jesus a need, a real need that you can't meet. I want you to imagine bringing that need to Jesus and telling him like, I need your grace. Maybe you're in like a, a situation in your household with your family. Maybe you're married. Maybe you have children. Maybe you have a situation with a parent or with a peer or with a coworker. Maybe it's a financial thing for you. Like, where are you in need today? I want you to imagine bringing that need to Jesus. Maybe it's a broken relationship. And then just watch what he does. Imagine yourself talking to him. What does he say? How does he respond? I want you to imagine him saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to meet your need. Maybe not in the exact way that you want it met, but I'm going to meet the need beneath the need. Sometimes, he makes blind people see, literally. But oftentimes what we most need is for spiritually blind, our spiritual blindness to be opened up into sight so that we can see him, so we can actually see what he's like, his generosity and his goodness. Okay, you can open your eyes. Jesus has shown the expendables kindness which means that there's hope for every single one of us in this room. You're not expendable. You're not an oversight. You are not secondary. You're an image bearer of God. And Jesus came to rescue you. He came to rescue you. He came to save you. He came to show you kindness. 
And so we're going to respond right now. Some of you may have specific things in your life that you're like, I need to bring this to Jesus. And I want my relationship with him not to be for attention, but real. And some of you need to bring your things to him. Maybe for the first time. If that's you, I want to invite you to come up and get prayer. Again, this isn't for attention. If anything, this is harder. (laughs) Coming up and getting prayer is the kind of attention people don't want, right? We don't want to admit that we're needy. But Jesus came for needy people. So if that's you, I want to invite you to come up and get prayer for anything at all that's on your heart and your mind, because Jesus is able. Again, he, he, he always responds in some way. It's not always answering the, our prayers exactly the way we want them to. We see that in the rest of the Bible, but sometimes it is like we see with these blind men. But either way, he wants to show you kindness today. Uh, for others of us, I think if you're a disciple, this is, this, is from, this is where I was at with this message this week. I realized like I needed some renewal in my heart for telling people about Jesus. If you're anything like me, sometimes it can just become like kind of rote. Following Jesus can become like rote. But what these men reminded me of in this story is that getting to tell people about Jesus is a privilege because he's so kind. He's shown me such kindness. So if you need to kind of reconnect with Jesus' kindness, if you're a disciple, I want to invite you to come up and get prayer. Again, this is how you know if your relationship with Jesus is real or if it's staged. You have needs and you bring them to him. And you thank him for responding. And you show gratitude with your words, with your actions, with your life. I think for the rest of us, I'm going to hand it off to Mark here in a second. But one of the things that we can do always to show gratitude is actually sing. He's given us a voice. He's given you a voice. And so when when Mark, when the band, when whoever's leading worship here is inviting you to respond, he's essentially saying, like, this is an opportunity to show honor and spread the fame of your patron, of Jesus, who's shown you such kindness. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to hand it off. Jesus, we thank you that you show these men such kindness and that's exactly what you want to do with all of us. Your kindness was shown ultimately on the cross where you laid down your life for us. You who had all power laid it all aside to identify with expendable people, with weak people, with broken people, so that we who have nothing could receive everything through your sacrifice. And so we want to honor you and thank you and bless you. And I thank you that we have opportunities even today to experience you in a fresh way. Maybe for the first time for some of us, and I think for a lot of us in like a new way, where we see you as the one who provides for our needs. Even when it's hard for you to do so, like on the cross, but you do so gladly. Thank you, Father. We honor you and we bless you. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, I'm going to hand it off so we can respond. In the next 20 minutes or so, respond.